So we've begun this conversation that I'm calling News Not Advice. And the idea behind it is that, is that, uh, today the church is often perceived as a provider of advice. If you, if you, you talk to Christians, oftentimes what, that's what you'll hear. You'll, you'll hear someone say, this is how you can go to heaven when you die, or this is how you can conquer this addiction, or this is how you can get right with God, or depending on, uh, maybe you're exposed to some Christians who've got a really particularly distorted gospel, this is how you can get rich, or this is how you can be healthy. That, that Christianity is often perceived to be a dispenser of advice, and that would have startled the people in the early church, because they did not see what they were talking about as advice. If you talk to people in the early church, they would have said what they were about was news, good news about an event, the the events of the life of Jesus Christ. And um, last week what we saw is that the, the, those events um, uh, were summarized by the Apostle Paul in, in the, his letter to the Corinthians. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But um, if, if you pause for a minute, if, if, you, if you weren't here last week and you try to think, what, is, what makes something good news? How can I tell if something is good news? What we learned last week is that good news is is not advice about something that could happen in, in, in the future if you do certain things. Good news has to be about an event that has already occurred that is somehow connected to us in such a way that it says good things about our future. That's what we learned last week, that if something happens on Pluto that's not good news for us because there's no way of connecting it to us. And if it's something that hasn't happened yet, it's not news either. It's just advice about the future. So good news is about an event that has already occurred that somehow connects with us and that tells us good things about our own future. So that's what we're trying to do. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to try and peel back all that that the, the layers that the centuries have given the church and Christianity about being about advice and we're going to try and listen to the good news as if we were in those first groups of people who had never heard of Christianity and strange people like Peter and Paul showed up and said, I've got good news. So we're going to try and listen to the good news. Now, the particular bit of good news we're going to listen to comes to us um, from the first letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He was reminding them of what he had taught them. And um, again, you can listen online if you weren't here last week. But Paul says this was written in about 55 A.D., so maybe 25 years after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul says that this is what the good news boils down to. This is kind of the nutshell. This is the bottom line. And Paul says this, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then that he lists a bunch of people that, that Christ appeared to. So that is for Paul the essence. That is the, the, the briefest possible summary of the good news about Jesus. And so we're going to try and unpack that over the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to make it through the first word because Paul begins that summary with the word Christ. And unfortunately, Christ is a, is a church word. Um, sometimes it's a swear word too. But it's basically a church word, and people don't know what Christ means. Uh, and so um, we're going to talk about that today, and then we'll talk about the rest over the next few weeks. But uh, Christ is a word we don't, we don't use, except maybe perhaps if we're churchgoers or if we are people who like to swear. So, so what does Christ mean? 
When I went to seminary, one of the things I was looking forward to is the 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 ability that I would learn over over time at the seminary to read the Bible in the in the original languages. I would learn biblical Greek, I would learn biblical Hebrew, and then I'd be able to really get into my studies and really it would it would come alive to me in, in ways that it didn't before. That's what I thought. When I actually got to seminary, when I began learning Greek and Hebrew, what what I found out is that actually we've got really good translations. It is it is very rare that I get some insight from the study of the original languages that I can't find in a regular English translation because we are at the end of 2,000 years of scholarship and we really understand what those words meant. And so, so if you, if you've got a couple of different Bibles, you might see they, they phrase an idea differently, but they rarely disagree over what the idea actually is. So I've kind of found that I was wasting my time there. But I did develop a, a kind of a bone that I pick with a, not just one translation, but with all the translations. And it's not, it's not anything to do with the Greek or the Hebrew. It has to do with the English. I think they get the Greek and the Hebrew just perfectly well. I can't, I can't second guess them on that. But they miss a point in the English. And one of the places they miss the English is right here. They, they didn't translate the word Christ. So all through the New Testament, we see this word Christ over and over and over again. Christ did this, Jesus Christ this, and they never translate it. And the reason is, you know, cultural or historical or they just don't feel comfortable changing it. But if I got to pick, you know, if somebody asked me what should be the one change they make in all the English Bibles, I would change the word Christ to king. And then maybe once in a blue moon, I would change it. I'd put a little footnote that said, or Christ. But most of the time, 90% of the time, 95 out of 100, I would say the proper word is king. And the reason for that is that Christ is actually a word in Greek. It means to smear someone with oil. And for us, it's like, well, that sounds kind of yucky. But it's it meant for them the same thing that crown means for us. If somebody becomes king, they get a crown put in their head. Back in those days, if somebody became king, they got oil put in their head. They were anointed. So when when we read in the Bible that somebody is anointed or the Christ, what they're really saying is somebody is the king. So I would change all the Bibles in the whole world, or at least all the ones in English, to say King Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. So that's my little thing. But if our goal is to hear the Bible as good news, that actually kind of makes it worse, doesn't it? I mean, does anybody really want a king? You know, I think, I think, you know, it's one thing, you're going to the supermarket, you see something about, you know, Kate Middleton and Prince Harry, and, you know, you're thinking how ironic they would name him Harry because he's got male pattern baldness. But, but you read that they're having another baby and you go, well, that's interesting, but, you know, it's not my problem. Look at the baby, so sweet, right? But it's not our problem. As long as the king is somewhere else, it's like, fine, I don't have a problem with kings. But I do have a problem with authority, and that's really what kings are all about. I don't like authority. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. And if I've got a problem with Christianity being about advice, how much worse is it if Christianity is not just about advice but about authority, about the ability to tell me what to do? We don't like authority. And let me prove this. I don't know, I don't know what all your politics are. I know, you know, you're probably a mix of different political persuasions, but let's just do a little thought exercise. Let's suppose that, that I was a legislator and I got to make rules governing the relationship between you and your wireless provider or your cable company or your internet service provider. My guess is you're thinking, 
great. It's about time they had a, a lid put on their prices or they had a certain mandatory quality of service because we like rules for other people. But suppose instead I said, actually what we're going to do is we're going to limit how fast your internet can be. And it can't be any faster than a dial-up. You'd say, I don't like that rule at all. Okay. Suppose I said, your price has to, has to match the highest price anywhere in the country. You'd say, I don't like that rule either. We don't like rules on us. We like rules on other people. But we have a problem with rules when they apply to us. So it's hard to hear the idea that there's a king as good news. So we could ask the question, how is that good news? Before we even get to the rest of what Paul had to say, how is it good news that we have a king? Well, the answer is, it depends what kind of king you're talking about. And this is a place where we actually have an advantage over people that Paul would have talked to or Peter would have talked to because they knew what kings were, and we really don't. We see them in the tabloids, and we think, you know, good for England. They got a king. Good for them. We don't really know. We know that there's a variety of kings. We know some do more, some do less. But we really don't have a good understanding of kings. In the Bible, they knew what kings were. And and the 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 evidence of that, maybe the best evidence of what the Bible people thought kings were about, is that is the names they gave them. You know, sometimes they would get tired of having a king. They'd have some kind of a upheaval. They'd have a revolution. And they'd say, we're not going to have any more kings. From now on, we're going to have a dictator. And you think that's an improvement? Or, or they'd say, we're going to have a tyrant. <laughs> this, is a, this is a step up from king. Or, or maybe they'd say, we're going to have an autocrat. And these are improvements over king. These are actual words they use. These are titles that were written on people's business cards, or if they'd had business cards, that's what had been written there. Autocrat, dictator, tyrant. These are steps up from king. So in the Bible, they knew what a king was all about. And so it would have been even harder for them to hear this business about a new king and to say, okay, I'm open, tell me more. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus said there is a king. The scriptures are perfectly clear from beginning to end that Jesus is a king. You know, sometimes we can try to file Jesus away. We can say, well, Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus is a holy man. Jesus is a teacher. But the scriptures are very clear. Jesus is king. The first chapter of the New Testament says Jesus Christ. It says, it says the genealogy, it begins, the verse one says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So it says he's Christ. He's king. He's that anointed guy. But it also says he's son of David. He says he's the last in a long line of kings. The very first chapter in the New Testament says Jesus is king. The last chapter in the New Testament, Revelation 22, says Jesus is the coming Lord. The kind of like Return of the King, you know, the, the, the Lord of the Rings movies. The, the king who's going to come back and sort everything out. The one we've been waiting for, he says that Jesus is the coming Lord. And not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament prophecies refer to the kingdom of Jesus. We heard one today from Daniel where it talked about there's going to be this succession of one kingdom and another kingdom, and another kingdom, and complicated imagery with this complicated figure made of gold and bronze and so forth. But the interpretation is, yes, there's a succession of kingdoms, but at the end is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is eternal, the kingdom that will never end. So Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is not just a holy man and a miracle worker. Jesus is a king. 
And so when Paul showed up in your town and said, good news, there's a king, you might say, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I don't know why I would like this one more than the other one. And Paul would say, this is a totally different kind of king. In our lesson today, we see that from Mark chapter 10. We, um, If you've got a copy of the scriptures, let's take a look starting in verse 35. It says, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, do for us whatever we ask of you. Give, a, give me a blank check, Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to write on the check? Jesus does not give them a blank check. He says, what do you want? And they say, well, we want to sit one in your right hand and one in your left in your glory. I want to be chief of staff. He wants to be secretary of state. We want to have top jobs in your cabinet. When you become king, Jesus, we want to be senior figures in your administration. We want to be the archduke and the grand vizier. And Jesus says, do you even know what you're asking for? Do you know what that's going to entail? And they say, no problem. I got that, I got that wired, Jesus. And he says, well, you're going to handle it all right. But to give you those jobs is not something I have authority over. You're going to have to, to uh, get them or not, depending on whether they, they're the ones prepared, you're the ones prepared for it. So then we read on. When the tin heard about it, they began to be angry with James and John. Probably because they were thinking, well, when Jesus becomes king, Jesus should appoint a committee to advise him who the best qualified individuals are, the people with the best gifts and skills for those jobs, right? You think that's what the tin thought? No, no. The tin thought I had dibs on that job. These guys got in ahead of me. They had to, they're trying to get the jobs beforehand. The whole reason I'm following this guy around is because I want a job just like James and John want a job. I want to be a senior figure in his administration. So Jesus looks at all 12 and says, huh. he says, Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those who they recognize as their rulers, lorded over them. Those who the Gentiles came up with titles like, like dictator and tyrant and autocrat to describe, you know what they're like. They lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But he says, it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And the disciples go, well, Jesus, that's just not how it works. I mean, you know, the mayor does not make coffee for his secretary. The president does not carry the luggage as he climbs down from Air Force One. That's not how it works, Jesus. The one on top doesn't serve. The one on top is served. And Jesus says, I know, I know that's how the world works. Jesus says, but the Son of Man, that's another kingly title. You can go look it up in Daniel chapter 7. It means the king that all authority has been given to. He says, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, I did not come to be served. I did not come so other people could carry my suitcase off the Air Force One or give me my coffee. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. And they go, man, that's a risk. What if your kingdom never comes? What, what, Jesus, if we spend our whole lives serving other people and we don't get any reward because some glitch happens and we don't get that reward? And Jesus says, it is a risk, but I will go first. I will give my life as a ransom for many. And then... I will come back and lead you as you do it.
This is what Jesus says his kingdom is like. It's not like the kingdoms governed by tyrants and dictators and autocrats. Jesus says his kingdom is fundamentally different. And maybe that doesn't sound like fun, to spend your life slaving for others, to to serve all. Maybe that doesn't sound like a kingdom you want to be part of. And if so, I would say it's because you have consciously or unconsciously bought into the world's idea of what a kingdom should be. That the way you get to the top is by clawing your way up. That other people's backs have your footprints by the time you get to the top. And Jesus says, but there's another kingdom. You can be part of another kingdom. The kingdom of service. And you say, yeah, but it's that service part I just don't like, Jesus. Jesus says, but that's the way it is. You know, it's not, it's not like if you serve your whole life, if you're a slave to all, then at the end, everything will be just like it is now, and you'll get a reward for all the service you did. What Jesus is saying is this is really what the kingdom is like, that the kingdom of God is upside down, that the more you serve, the more opportunities you have to serve. The more you slave for others, the more people you can slave for. Jesus says that's what it's really like. It's not even like if you go to the gym because you know you've got to work out in order to get healthy. Jesus says, no, the working out is the reward. That is the thing. If you can't stand sweat, you'll never be happy in the gym. Maybe you'll go to the gym anyway because of the health benefits. But Jesus is saying it's the sweat. That is the reward. My kingdom is upside down. So, what do we do with this? How can this possibly be good news to us? Well, I, I think maybe what it says is that, is that there aren't going to be a lot of ambitious people in God's kingdom. You know, the scriptures tell us about uh, uh, the time in God's kingdom when, when people would sit under their vine and fig tree and none would make them afraid. Maybe what it says is there's just not a big hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Maybe there's only a handful of people that have enough ambition to serve all and to be a slave to everyone. And that doesn't sound too bad to me, honestly. I like the idea that only people who really, really, really want to be servants are leaders. I like that idea. But maybe it says something more. Think about the times you have served, not because you had to, but because you wanted to. Think about the times someone you love was sick. And you stayed up all night. Or you stayed in the hospital and you read to them. Think about the time that you made your mom breakfast because it was Mother's Day. Think about the time when somebody needed a celebration and you organized it. You caused there to be a party. You served because you wanted to do it. Because it was the right thing and it made you feel good to do it. Jesus is saying his kingdom is the kind of place, the kind of reality where that is the essence. Those aren't the, those aren't the occasion, the special occasions you fit in somewhere between everything else. That is the path to power and responsibility to do the things that you love, the things that brought you joy. Jesus says, this is the reality of my kingdom, a kingdom where power comes, where authority comes, not because someone has a love of power, but because of the power of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a God of love.
that your son Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to evaluate, to think about what it would be like to be part of that kingdom, not the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of tyrants and dictators and autocrats, but a kingdom of love, a kingdom where when we serve, when we serve, not because we're forced to, but because we are able to, because we want to, that that is rewarded, that that is enshrined, that is celebrated, that is lifted up, that that is the basis for all authority and power. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep that in mind, help us to live it out in your kingdom as it begins to dawn in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.